know how I've been. I've been fine, I guess. So, you know, every, every day is a different beast. So <laughs> the bureaucracy of just... Yeah, that goes on every day because it takes sometimes each call that I have to make takes can take an hour, an hour and a half because you're on hold. You can't get anybody. It's oh, it's, it can be really challenging. Yeah. Or someone has to call you back and, you know, so it everything. It sounds like some sort of health insurance, but obviously probably thousands. It is. It, work, it's, work. it's health insurance. It's changing over billing accounts. It's the car. It's the house. It's this. It's that. There's so many things. There's so many things. Just to have to live an ordinary life. Because I we always had lived a very spare life, Philippe and I. We had an apartment. We had a dog. You know, we had a car. But that was it. And you add a house and you, you know, you retire and then all this stuff happens and then well, you kind of entered into, anyway, I don't know if it's time to joke, but you also entered into kind of ownership, ownership. We did. We, did. We, went, we went totally bougie. We had been pretty bougie and we went totally bougie and, and it just comes with all of this stuff that you're not even thinking about, you know. And once you can't do your own taxes with TurboTax, you know you're in it. So now we, for the first time, we had to, I had to hire somebody, yeah. Oh, you actually could always do it on your own? Philippe always did it, yeah. Uh, well, I guess if you're like, prof- it's sort of like a, not a shady, <laughs> no shady income. <laughs> yeah, it was so little income that it already, you know, it was coming in and going right out again. We were teachers, you know, you know, there wasn't going to be anything complicated. But, yeah. now but it's, it's also, no, I mean, not, not that someone makes a lot, but even if you make little, but you're kind of more of a weird freelancer, that taxes actually can be rather complicated. Well, that's true. If, you, if, if I'd really been making money is seriously, as a freelancer, it would have been more complicated. But I never was really making <laughs> enough. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't making enough to really even justify uh, reporting it often. So yeah. You know. oh, oh, Jesus, I don't know. I mean, I, did I mean not that I know it's not going to make like probably drastic change, but I wonder if you tried any like a, it's called like I think I'm, this L things amino acids or what you know the stuff I sent you oh handbell yes L-theanine. yes did you feel anything because like i don't know to me i almost can't always take it but alphanian really like kicks in i so far i haven't felt it strongly but i think i'm sleeping better i, I seem to be sleeping more soundly so that's a huge thing i'm not waking so there, up so there is something right? yeah okay i'm not waking up many times a night like i i was so that's and you take and that's like the um i i always also mix it up the magnesium, magnesium. you take in the evening yeah, yeah that's night. one that helps to sleep and yeah. then throughout the day it's supposed to not make you drowsy but there's a sort of calmness supposed to use kind of like it should be like a, I don't know, some kind of level, <laughs> calm level. And you know that might be doing something. I can't tell really. I'm, I'm, a, I think it's probably doing something, but I can't feel it directly. Yeah, but you, but you are taking both. Right now, yes, right? I'm taking both. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm just curious. Yeah, because if you, I wonder if you stick at it. If I stick like, to it long yeah, enough. Like yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, not like forever, but you can try. Yeah, because it, it's weird. All those L stuff. It sounds so almost. I don't know. Does it sound new agey or kooky? But that stuff is not placebo. That's what I discovered. Uh, it's okay. not like yeah, homeopathic. I'm, it's actually. Me. I want all drugs to be my friends, and and often they are. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but the, the the big discovery for me. I mean, whatever. You don't have to be in America for that. Mm. Like I think those L uh, different. Um, uh, I mean, assets you can buy in different countries, but the fact that it's all most of the stuff that actually works can be bought over the counter. Mm-hmm. So it's not like a prescription, some kind of mm-hmm. insidious yeah. thing. It's really just over the counter stuff. So that's actually surprising because some of that stuff is strong. So, but 
I guess it is surprising because in America, as soon as anything has got a reputation for being strong enough to work, they they make you they make you get a prescription. So yeah, or that's something. what I was thinking, but not yeah. this. Yeah. So they. I mean, I guess I forget. I, I'm not so good with like legalistic stuff, but there's something about yeah. I think they're they can't uh, sort of outlaw or make it restricted the L amino acids uh-huh. All thing. Right. Which is I don't know I guess good good for us yeah but anyway yeah I'm I'm on a few different I mean but it, it seems to help seems yeah the sleep to. and the sleeping is a godsend you know if, when I don't when I can't sleep I I really become a wreck in almost no time I mean I just become an insane person so this is very good yeah yeah no I had those yeah if you like wake up in the middle of the night oh. and can go to sleep and the next day is almost like psychedelic it is it is it's just it's just which yeah in the, well, in the worst in the way. way in the bad in trip the worst. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah no no bad trip bad trip and yeah. like then days merge into one bad mm-hmm. trip yeah yeah i had that bad. but yeah but yeah yeah i'm not comparing <laughs> our but yeah but that's still that that still happens mm-hmm. pangs of pangs of fear <laughs> yes lots of fear comes through a really real raw states of fear you feel much more intensely yeah yeah but then you're sort of more in sync with the world right yeah and i don't want to be in sync with the world the world is not a good place so, well, <laughs> so yeah, mostly so. Just, yeah. but just think in sync now because now everyone is in this yeah everyone's scared right. all the time yeah Oh, I'm I'm kind of dreading to talk about it. I we know we're, we're trying to avoid our own topic, <laughs> Sorry, <I know. laughs> which is love in film. And I, I'm not sure how we both agreed to do this, but we did. I don't know. It's a very dangerous topic because as soon as you start thinking about it and wanting and starting to decide what you're going to say and what films you're going to pick, you realize mm-hmm. it's exposing in this way. <laughs> that is embarrassing. It's embarrassing to talk about it. It is embarrassing to, but I don't know. I have nothing to hide. It's more was almost, um, I guess I was almost more surprised myself when I like tried to create a, at least a version of, I mean, pretty short list. And I obviously, I probably don't remember everything that was just a spur of the moment. Mm. And I like realized for me, it's mostly it seems to be, you know, you can act too. <laughs> Or you feel that that's the the real love story? Exactly. Um, when I was trying to think, now. what's what's even our criteria? What's our criteria for for what what is successfully represented love in film or something? And of course, you immediately think, well, it's what resonates with me. It's what I it's what I recognize as being something like my experience, which most most films about love are very very conventional and, and have nothing yeah. to do with, with or seem to have nothing to do with my experience anyway. So that that rules out an awful lot of of yeah. romantic comedies and romantic dramas, which I tend to avoid because I don't like the conventions particularly. So yeah, that's true. But then it's also weird. Like obviously, there's a whole like a strain of like Hollywood kind of traditional happy ending love films, mm-hmm. and they almost create also it's like the other way around. Like like they influence the reality or expectations of reality. They do. For Right, they so it's not do. just oh, what do I recognize? It's just like that's I guess with people, or at least those who are propagandized from early on with movies, which majority of people at this point probably around the world. That's what they kind of like. I know it's terrible. It's insane that that you you recognize in people's mm-hmm. behavior. I mean, this goes is going back. You know, in the old days, I there used to be something called dating. Nobody does this anymore, but in my youth, they did. It was horrifying, and one of the most horrifying things were that you'd run into people who clearly wanted to create scenes that they'd seen in the most cliched romantic movies and they'd want they'd invite you to like i don't know you go horseback riding on the beach or they'd want to take you out to dinner in a way in imitation of what they'd seen and into some fantasy oh it was just it was just nightmarish
Russian horrible. And she's like, because you could oh, recognize really? the setup of like, oh, I'm supposed to like <sighs> this. And I, oh, I always hated it so much. So embarrassing. Interesting. It's the whole carriage ride in the park phenomenon that you've seen a million times in movies. And somebody wants to get you into some version of that. It's just so awful. Oh. Yeah, but it's also, they also like don't know. It's also like an illusion they inhabit too so it's probably almost um sincere attempt you would oh, think oh i think it, yeah i think definitely <laughs> which is uh which is interesting people have almost i guess rally in your originality or i don't know just just do the movies well, destroy it, it any made, originality? It, well yeah and it made sense for a lot you know in a more traditional culture and you can understand i mean it, you need forms to help you through life and but, you know, once you hit modernity, <laughs> and if you're at all what you consider a modern person or a postmodern person, I don't know, well, I can't speak for the postmodern, I never understood it. So um, let's just stick with the modern. You know, it sweeps away your ability to invest in all of these conventions that once mm-hmm. you would have been happy to have the guy kneel down and do the marriage proposal. And you know, <laughs> that was, I think, I get the impression that's, that was because it was a relief to have the, it known what you were supposed to do in given situations. You still see it with death. People don't know what to say. People don't know mm-hmm. quite how to act. And, and you can see the relief in being able to find the phrase, my condolences or something. Because it's such an extreme emotional situation that people need something. So you can kind of see how that arises. But as soon as you hit, <laughs> hit modernity, like hitting a wall, it's like you can't feel comfortable anymore. So nobody's going to kneel down to do a marriage proposal <laughs> past a certain point in time because it's just too, like, that's oldie timey and it, you can't do that anymore. Um, so finding other conventions starts, at least for me, uh, starts to seem so awkward. So I tend to like films where it's all about that. So my favorite, we can get into it later, we can talk about yours first, but, but, but I'll just say mm-hmm. my favorite genre for representing love is screwball comedy because it's all about how the old forms won't work anymore of love, romance, and marriage. So we have to embrace whatever this new thing is, which we don't even know. And it's just this chaos <laughs> and insanity. And love is not even recognizable as what love would have been even a generation earlier. Um, Say more. No, let's get into this now because I, I mean, I watched, I mean, my own share of, I guess, screwball comedy, mm. but I don't know anything about, like, the reason, you know, like, actually, this history behind the genre. And, mm-hmm. You know, so you, you <laughs> please enlighten, enlighten me. Well, you know, depending on who you read, I mean, I read a lot of Stanley Cavell, the American philosopher who wrote a the book called Pursuits of Happiness, but there's tons written about screwball comedy is this important form that's, ho- it's purely Hollywood. It's a Hollywood form. It doesn't have any antecedents. Its mm-hmm. closest relative is the romantic comedy, but romantic comedy always takes love, even though it's comedy, you know, somewhat seriously. It'll usually it'll usually get serious somewhere in the second or third act. There'll be a serious moment where love really is, you know, everyone has to get all somber about it. Mm-hmm. But screw all comedy, if you take something as outrageous as say Howard Hawks bringing up baby, is just not having it. Love is love is a mania. Love is like you can't define it in any again of what would have been recognized as love in older terms. So if you ever watch it, it's Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant and and they're just running madly through the entire film. Um, you know, getting into one pratfall, insane misunderstanding and, and scrape after another until, you know, in the end they're in Connecticut chasing a leopard, a missing leopard named Baby through the woods. And it's, you know, it's it's Hawks, you know, had a particular obsession with a, a kind of, in comedy, with this kind of animality in humans that, that comes out and is irrepressible. And, and he had a wonderful way of embracing it. So one of the great scenes is 
is the two of the, the two lead actors and a leopard and a, a dog. <laughs> Dogs are important in screwball comedy. There are no children. The couples don't have children. They have a dog. Um, so there's a dog and it's almost the same dog from it's from the thin man. His name is Asta and he became a very famous uh, uh, fox terrier. Anyway, so they're all singing. They're all singing. I can't give you anything but love and the and the leopard is yowling and the dog is howling and and they achieve a kind of mad harmony together that's completely spontaneous um Wait, but when you say so that's since the screwball comedy has mm-hmm. like a new convention of love unlike the old convention what is the old convention the kind of well it, it would have been a kind of it's all about marriage yes it would have been a kind of the last fumes of the victorian era highly formalized courtships leading up to marriage marriage is the bedrock of society you're really getting married to create a harmonious environment for children um you know and it's just it's very deliberately ruled by conventions. You give certain flowers on certain occasions. You say certain things a certain way. You get married in a certain way. You wear certain clothes, everything. But it's very, of course, also what um, um, divided in terms of gender. So there's absolutely binary. Males play a certain role. They're public. They work. They earn the money. Women are, you know, do domestic hearth angels they stay in the private realm. They raise the children there at home. They have completely divided experiences and everything about them is extremely divided. So, you know, probably most people would look at 30s and 40s screwball comedies and not see how radical they were. But they were really trying to reckon with, especially the quote unquote, what they called then the new woman. And the new woman can vote. The new woman has new rights. She can get divorces, which she couldn't have once or couldn't have mm-hmm. easily at all. Um, you know, she's got money. She she works. Women are now working. There's all of this. The newly independent woman who leaves the traditional mm-hmm. male in the dust. So what about often, Cecil DeMille, though, Sergeant Trump? Because he was like earlier established himself. He's he's considered a kind of an early an early phase leading discre- because he does comedies about divorce like in the mm-hmm. 1910s that are are kind of radical because divorce is really rapidly on the rise um so yeah some of his you know what are they called why divorce your husband and why keep your wife and all these kind oh, right. of comical titles um that he does are considered forerunners of screwball comedy but screwball comedy is an unusual one it's given a year of its birth which is the year 1934 when you get the thin man nick and norald charles and their dog asta as a screwball couple. It was actually written by Dashiell Hammett and is nominally a detective story, but it's really a screwball comedy with detective story tropes. But they become the model couple. They constantly play. They constantly drink. They're, they Again, there's, you know, they, they, it's them and their dog Asta in a series of like, they have, there's pratfalls, there's constant like verbal patter. Um, there's, and there's this great feeling of equality um, between them. She's the one who has all the money for one thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> So it's they're a new kind of couple. The other the other movies are It Happened One Night, Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert. Again, it seems to be a new kind of couple that that seem to fight and argue and come together on on fairly equal terms. Often the not always. Often the the, the woman is rich, a quote unquote madcap heiress, or she's she works in the world. So, you know, girls who are, I don't know, what we'd now call administrative assistants or whatever, shop, you know, they work in shops, the whatever. They have their own income. So they have a level of independence and they can go toe-to-toe with men, sometimes literally in fistfights that they will get into or brawls. Um, but certainly a lot of verbal 
patter and verbal battles, um, but all on much more equal terms. So screwball comedy seems to be trying to figure out what is romance and marriage going to look like in the modern era with the modern woman who doesn't obey any of the existing rules, which means all those rules get swept away. Mm-hmm. And you have to make it up as you go along and you get something that's much less pious about, to say the least, about about love, romance, and if marriage occurs, marriage. There's also a whole divorce kind of subgenre where it's, you know, Cavell calls it the comedy of remarriage. They're either getting a divorce or they have divorced and it's... Can they get together? Can they find their way back to each other? So it's all of these just trying to take on the new um, when the old conventions won't do. So you get these wonderful comedies that are so bracing. I mean, Preston Sturgis comedies like The Lady Eve and The Palm Beach Story. They're so good. Um, The Awful Truth, The Philadelphia Story is one of them. Um, Lubitsch? Lubitsch is kind of a forerunner, too. And I'm trying to think, does he actually do a screwball comedy? I don't know, Trouble in Paradise. Trouble in Paradise is pretty close. Like screwball. It's pretty screwball, um, even though it's yeah, a couple like years that. earlier. And he's his own kind of genre. The Lubitsch film is is, and he inspires. Touch, right? He's a is huge it? inspiring figure for you know Billy Wilder and Preston Sturgis, both worship mm-hmm. Lubitsch. So yeah, so his brand of very sophisticated, very jaded, even attitude toward romance is one of the strands that feeds into screwball comedy where you're just not reverent about love and marriage because love and marriage is this scrum (laughs) this crazy new like his girl friday is probably the greatest example of how radically romance and marriage is being reconceived um it's based on a uh a famous play called The Front Page, and it's about a newspaper editor who's trying to keep his best writer, his top writer in, at the paper that you know he basically runs, from going getting married and leaving the newspaper game. Howard Hawks recognizes that relationship is fundamentally a love story, even though they're fighting constantly. Um, and he casts the, the male part of the writer as a woman named Hildy Johnson that's played by Rosalind Russell, and Cary Grant is the newspaper man. And the whole battle is he's just desperately trying to prevent her from leaving to try to lead a conventional, you know, pre-modern kind of love life, love and marriage life with an insurance salesman. And he's desperately trying to keep her, but mainly because she's the best writer on the paper. And his love for her is completely intertwined with his recognition that her abilities are the greatest at the paper. So that's so unusual right there for 1940 that it's staggering. And, you know, it's all about this frenzy of speed, of thought, of you know of of being jaded and cynical the newspaper people are a kind of shabby aristocracy because they're the only people who recognize how corrupt um, how kind of hilariously awfully you know corrupt the world is they're completely cynical completely wised up and that's their you know that's their claim to greatness so they, they oh, not, it, not not now interesting how the yes. newspapers, oh, newspapers were really wow. revered in in a in a in a way they're both kind of mocked as like they're really grungy sordid places no, and, no, no. I mean, the fact that they were considered like, like the most cynical, jaded characters. Yes. I think now they're like as if some kind of white knights and some kind of horse, and it's mm-hmm. like the most morally, I don't know, almost like idealistic pretend to be. Yes, the pretense. Though the pretense is where's 
spinner every day. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, in this movie, it's completely, and it's written by newspaper men. Charles MacArthur and Ben Hecht were both newspaper guys. So it's both a tribute to the newspapers and a like a look at how you know, they were paid badly. You know, it's really rough circumstances. It's a very dark, it's a surprisingly dark movie. Um, there's a character, the most poignant character in the film, uh, who's a prostitute who falls in love with a man who's about to be, you know, hanged for murder, um, actually tries to commit suicide. It has very, very dark qualities um, to it as well. But at any rate, their love is completely based on the wonderful syncopated rhythm they can get together even when they're fighting and that gets more harmonious when they're working together. So it's all about bringing Hildy back to an awareness that fundamentally she is, as she says herself at one point, I'm a newspaper man. And that means something in this film. That's the best you could be in a really dark fallen world. The best thing you can be is, again, well, they weren't gender sensitive, is to be a newspaper man. So she has to find her way back away from romantic cliches, which will never satisfy her, um, back into a world where they, they have no home. The only home you ever see them together is in this, like basically the city room of writing stories together. Um, so it's, and it's considered, you know, one of the fastest movies ever made. Everyone's talking at double speed and moving and plotting and counterplotting against each other. And it's a whole other way to look at love where there isn't going to be any romance in the traditional sense. There isn't going to be any home. There isn't going to be any children. It's going to be this editor and this writer working on a newspaper and that's going to be their lives together. Um, and it's great beyond words. It's like a complete reconception of what of what they're of what love and marriage is going to be. Yeah, it's kind of refreshing. It's almost then went into I don't know. There are no screwball comedies around with that sort of <laughs> attitude, right? Even now, you it's hard to imagine a film. Maybe there is one, and someone could 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 write in and let us know on the film suck site. Is there one where the man loves the woman for her talent? For the fact that she's the best writer or the best something? Is is that even a thing? <laughs> you know? Well, wait, you would think, wait, in this kind of like, um, what is it, liberal feminism and all that, you would, where women are very career oriented, I guess that should be a case, but I don't, I don't, I'm not a big watcher of like romantic comedies. No, me either. So maybe it exists, but I tend to doubt it. <laughs> I tend to doubt it. <laughs> Huh. It feels like generally there are not that many interesting, when you look at the modern films of that, of that kind of genre, whatever, mm-hmm. comedy, melodramas, there's not much interesting kind of like personality traits, just generally the characters there. So they're not very strong man or woman. No, it's they, kind of even when they way, try for them know? to be eccentric in some way, they're, they're that kind of mildly adorable eccentricity like Drew Bar- young Drew Barrymore used to have or something. Oh. Just a slight, slight quirkiness. <laughs> but you're right, very, very mild, not that memorable. Um, no. Whereas Hildy is, you know, the, the, the woman who's thinking of leaving is su- such a maniac that she gets this wild-eyed gleam when she hears the, the, the fire alarms go off because that means that there's a story. So that she's immediately like electrified <laughs> and that's how, you know, she'll never be able to leave Walter, the editor. She'll never be able to leave the paper and she'll certainly never be able to, to be with this insurance salesman who's slow, who never gets the joke, who never gets the reference. She constantly has to explain things to him or lie to him, mm-hmm. you know, to, to, to sort of maneuver him because he just is he's just not in the world of, of the wised up and she can never be with him. And that's a great thing I, lo- I do love most about scribble comedies. It shows love as not this thing, I don't know, that's in 
Valentine's cards. It's love as you fall into a rhythm together that you can't achieve with anyone else. But it's and also it, about person, right? Two personalities meeting. Sure, there's like a sexual component. Uh-huh. But there's a lot of sort of personality thing intertwined. It's not like a conservative thing of whether you're going to be, I don't know, a respectable woman and a mother or oh, no, no. you come from a certain <laughs> family or as a, for a man, like, or you make... I don't know how much money a year. It's none of that because it's actually not about it, right? No, it's about when you talk, even when you're fighting, do you achieve some sort of really mesmerizing syncopated rhythm that you can't get with anyone else? You can't generate it with anybody else. And of course, it's it's like having, no, it's just like, it is like a having a beat that's your own, right? Yes. Yes. And so it sort of preserves the, the, the kind of weirdness and mystery of the whole thing. When you're in it, it is a very weird a weird thing, especially when if if like most people, you're growing up, you don't know what it is. You hit adolescence, and you're kind of like, mm-hmm. okay, what's this going to be? And it's not matching up. At least for me, it never was matching up with what one had read or seen in movies or anything else. And you're kind of going, what what is this thing <laughs> uh, that's supposed to be happening? I'm, I'm sort of getting smiled crushes on people, I guess you'd call them, but they're not even that strong, and I'm not acting like you know, you would see in movies and no one's acting that way toward me. And yeah, it's kind of a, it's kind of a mysterious thing when you first wander into it. Like what the hell is this? Mm -hmm. Um, And, and screwball comedies are sort of there to help you see, no, that's exactly right. (laughs) You're not going to know it. You're going to wander into this relationship probably with it going, it's either going to hit you like a brick wall and you're suddenly just fixated. Like in bringing up baby, Catherine Hepburn just decides this guy is the man for me, you know, this glasses wearing Cary Grant for no, for no apparent reason. <laughs> just like, nope. And then she just maniacally pursues him until he succumbs. And, the, and there's no rhyme or reason to it. There's no, there's no conventional romantic. I love him because and listing qualities. No. None of that. I mean, movie or no movie, which is clearly very rarely portrayed in the movies, as, mm. as, as you say. But generally, I think very few people actually experience that. So that's like can remain a very foreign concept. That's like hard to believe that it's even. You mean like the fixation yeah. Or, yeah, or the, the falling into the rhythm? The yeah, the rhythm, the beat. The it would be so interesting because then maybe it's so unique that every person has to define it for themselves. I don't know. Well, maybe yeah. What if it's not? Because like also, I mean, I don't. I mean, no accusations. <laughs> But that's what you're describing. Mm. The some screwball comedies that I watched, um, and the way they're written and the way mm-hmm. the characters are. I mean, they're exciting, but a lot of the things are very. They're very verbal people, and the women are very witty mm. and very fast, mm-hmm. and it's all about being like thinking your feet. But then, how like is it very representational of humanity in general? Not everyone is verbal. Not everyone is about <laughs> any kind of rhythm. It, it's and it's not bad. It's just not everyone has that. So. What if it's two slow people who can barely talk? <laughs> That's true. No, I'm, just, and right. I, I'm not condescending. It's just how <laughs> things are. So what their thing is not love? What if they bond over sport or, I don't know, something? <laughs> and they just sit on the couch together and watch something. And that's happy. And they yeah. don't talk. I don't know. Just imagining. And they like food. or Right. Like, no, and like, that could be exactly it. Because, you know, you know, part of the screwball comedy thing is to characterize the, the modern era as fundamentally fast. It's a fast-paced world and verbal. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. And for a lot of people, they're not living that life at all. They're living... It's not all about conversation, you know. Or it's just a very slow lane life. Like, not a lot happens. Yeah. 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 Not a lot. Like, not everyone has a very engaging kind of, like, 
um, you know, like thought, you know, not everyone's like constantly thinking something, mm-hmm. or not even original, but just something that they need to share and like elaborate on or whatever. And so, so again, like something not necessarily seeking out or even can't recognize it in others and bond over that or I don't know, fall into rhythm, as you say. Yeah. So I, I find it's kind of, I don't sound too litus because I don't think it's also, it's not a thing because it's not necessarily a thing for everyone. No, you know, no, it was for me, and, for me and my husband, it was perfect because we were super verbal and we, we fell effortlessly into conversational rhythms and we both felt most comfortable when it was him, me and a dog. And even that is totally screwball. <laughs> There's several movies where it's the couple and the dog. And for some reason, that's the perfect arrangement. And so you're just like, no, this is us. This is this is a version of think, us. Why do you think the screwball? I never thought of it. But yeah, the women independent, they're not mm. really mothers frequently. But like, why is that in terms of screwball? Why is it like that? Well, for Stanley Cavell, anyway, this is his explanation. He said, because you're trying to work out your relationship and part of working out your relationship in this new version of what coupling is going to be like, there has to be a lot of reversion to play state. And there's going to be a lot of people taking on other identities. So that's almost always going to be part of the play um, mm-hmm. that you wind up having to pretend to be someone else. So in the awful truth, you know, I don't know, the, 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 the wife winds up pretending to be the husband's sister, but she makes it the trashiest sister ever to scare off his his new fiance because they're getting a divorce, um, who is a rich snob or something. So there'll be all this kind of, you know, going away to different places where you have a Midsummer's Night's Dream kind of exchange of couples, which you see in Philadelphia's story and bringing a baby. Um, he called it going to the green world. It's often Connecticut. You go to some place where you can be roaming around outside, <laughs> um, engaging in kind of play and role play and all of the stuff to find your way back to yourself. You have to be able to play to get back to some sort of authentic self, authentic emotion. Because people in, in screwball comedy, anyone who's playing a role is a rigid person who's forgotten how to live. So mm-hmm. I don't know, bringing a baby, Cary Grant is kind of getting, finding himself trapped in his role as a prominent like zoologist. And he, he's, he's very stilted and he's very easily shocked. And Catherine Hepburn is going to just tear, tear his world down and apart and break his glasses and just do everything you can name to him. Um, and wind up naming him another character called Mr. Bone that he has to play for a whole crazy night. And she's going to do all these things to him that break him down and allow him to truly live for the first time which is you know both a great thing and a terrible thing because it's terrifying to truly live and he's constantly almost losing his life and (laughs) getting into danger and falling down cliffs and you name it um so so you can't have children because then one's sentimental feelings are going to be worried about the well are the children going to (laughs) be okay while the, the parents aren't allowed to revert to childhood while there are children people would feel uneasy there's often also he added there's often never a mother You'll almost never see like one of the couples have a mother. Hmm. You can see a father sometimes in some sort of interesting relationship to the daughter, usually comical. But there's never a mother because he says, again, there's all this sentimental, emotional feeling about mothers. And mothers bring kind of a whiff of poignancy and tragedy Mm -hmm. because for many women of that generation, the mother would have probably been trapped into some sort of Victorian half-life for women. So that brings – he has a much better explanation. I'm just riffing here. But it brings, again, all of this kind of damper feeling of sadness or lost potential or Mm -hmm. something. 
that mother characters are almost never allowed and children almost never see them. But dogs can get right into states of play <laughs> um, in ways that you don't worry about them. So I think that's why. They're almost a child substitute. You get a, la- a lot of laughs out of the, ch- the dog being treated like a child. So in The Awful Truth, there's a custody battle over the dog. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but yeah. but they're playful. You can have fun with them, and you're not always fretting. Like, can a dog take care of himself? You're not worried about that yeah. so much. But you know what brings me? I don't know if we can segue. What brings me hmm. to? Uh, I mean, I have like all mostly kind of pretty dark movies where one of the partners dies as as my like love movies uh-huh. of choice. But the ones that where people don't die, that it would be like Adam's Family, which is actually mm-hmm. interesting in terms of what you're talking about, Screwball and the kind of the childless fun uh, couple that are kind of. I don't know, almost rivals and like do pranks on each other and, you know, almost like lack the kind of, I don't know what the, as you say, poignancy that's like the children require. Anyway, so Adam, Adam's family got an interesting case. I know yes. I already had like an episode on that, but I do, I never realized it, but I was a child, a kid, I really loved the movies. Um, I, I only actually watched the one, as a kid, I only watched the ones with, um, Angelica Houston, those mm-hmm. two movies. I, I don't think I watched the early 60s thing. And mm-hmm. I, I watched it later and wasn't a big fan. But anyway, so the Angelica Houston thing, I mean, it's kind of actually an interesting, very unique portrayal of family. Yes. Where the, um, not only, obviously, it's very dark and to consumerist and, <laughs> I don't know, ultimately very kind of outsider family mm-hmm. thing, but yet they're in their own way very wholesome. And the most interesting thing, which which is like the parent, whatever, um, Morticia and what's his name? Gomez. Gomez, right? They actually are like sexy. They're yeah. not some kind of sexless friends mm-hmm. uh, who are like, I don't know, cook food and take care of children. And uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Do you want to argue about money? No, um, they're among the few couples that you ever see sexy the sexiness yeah. of the relationship actually come across in a way that you love them for it. <laughs> Usually yeah, it's so, so awkward they, when the, it's ever attempted. I'm even trying to think of examples there have been. And you just feel like, oh, that's really painfully strained. You're trying so hard. But with the Adams family, you actually, it seems totally believable and great. And yeah. Lovable. And that's, you know, I don't know that, like, you know, in terms of film history. Mm. Yeah. That's, uh, I don't know. Are there any other portrayals? Obviously, this is like a very kind of cartoonish thing. It's mm-hmm. supposed to be comical, but I think it's somehow very warm and profound. Yes. It's not just comical. That's a great kind of couple. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> and, um, yeah. I don't yeah. know. And the fact that she's sort of quietly, secretly a matriarch and he adores her. Mm-hmm. But, um, I don't know, but he, he it clearly doesn't take away from his whatever macho manhood. Mm-hmm. All these interesting elements that you kind of rarely see. No, they can even but pull off light yeah. suggestions of S and M. You know, kind of bonded. Oh yeah, and they pull that off too, and you love them for that too. They wear, <laughs> remind me. Um, it's in. I'm t- forgetting which of the which of the first two. It's in where she's being tied. She's being tied up and she's like, ooh, you know, she's like being like, oh, and I can't remember exactly what she says, but it's very sweet and funny (laughs) with the suggestion that, of course, you can't terrorize her um, (laughs) with a little light, you know, leather strap. You know, she's uh, she's and that's, of course, how you can get away with children in the Adams family as well, because the children are so terrifyingly homicidal themselves Mm -hmm. um, that you can't menace them. You can't menace Wednesday Adams. No one worries for Wednesday Adams. You should be worried to be with Wednesday Adams because, you know, who's going to die? It's not going to be her. So, yeah, so you have children who are completely beyond self-sufficient 
you never worry about them. They're always setting tra- lethal traps for s- themselves and each other and enjoying it immensely. Um, yeah, so there yeah, is this sense that... Like way above average intelligence, which is scary. So mm-hmm. you really don't worry about her. Yeah. And so that also allows the, the parents to have a full life mm-hmm. together in a way. Like if you look at most sitcoms, you know, now they really try to address it and they try to have the, the parents have some sort of sexual life. But it's always uncomfortable because the I, I always think just because the first sitcoms were based on what you just described, a kind of sexless life de- dedicated to light laughs and, and taking care of the kids and the mm-hmm. kids shenanigans and stuff. So leave it to Beaver and, you know, all the all those 50s ones kind of set the terms for what the what the family-based sitcom tends to be. So that even if you try to add in, like, I don't know, the Roseanne show used to always try to add in some sort of sex life between you know, John Goodman and Roseanne Barr. And you're just like, you know, I'm not, I ain't thanking you for this, the few, the few I saw anyway. So, you know, sitcoms were always kind of hard to take in that way, I think. they do. I think they do it all do it badly. Yeah, but Adam's family is also so unique for any kind of American portrayal. It doesn't matter, I, I think, really 50s or or even like 2020 mm. of anything because I mean I, I have to say it's probably a significant element whatever they're sexy they're kind of mm. cool and like uh, but none of them actually work so the man doesn't have this kind of he's not a tired provider yes exactly guy, and the woman is not some kind of domestic adderall mm-hmm. high on adderall servant <laughs> you know of whatever the other options are some career woman so they actually just sort of like hang out mm-hmm. And plot and like have fun. So how yeah, that, admittedly they can't. right? So yeah. who the hell has that? Yes, so, they can And they can't. They couldn't exist if they didn't have some sort of ancient money. Uh, literally gold coins. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. At least like a few, <laughs> a hand, and what's it? So it's an interesting argument that that Cavell argued that you know one thing you could accuse at least a lot of screwball comedies of is a kind of you know favoring of wealth because a lot of the couples are are, are wealthy or at least one member of the couple is wealthy and he winds up arguing he's like well that's true but it's also how else are you and he essentially makes the argument you just made how are they going to be able to have time <laughs> to play yeah. to explore other identities to figure yeah. out how they want to be together if they have to both go to work all the time <laughs> So, yeah, and also like preserve some kind of like almost childish persona, and not just childish, just generally interesting persona outside of some kind of worker drone mentality. Right. Like worries, worries, worries. Right. Well, so wealth equals a kind of freedom because often it'll be sort of established and then forgotten. You never care about the money after you're, yeah. after you're relieved of the worry that but what are they, how are they surviving? And then it's all about, well, how can you have a kind of freedom as a couple, achieve a kind of freedom and as close to equality as you could get in the 30s and 40s anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which is, I mean, I don't know what's the conclusion to make here about this kind of generational wealth because we're not talking about someone just having a high salary and having a comfortable life because mm. of that. Literally. No, it's, that, it's the kind <laughs> of money where you don't work. Exactly. <laughs> so that's like, a, you know, that's very few people have it. And in America, I think people who have it, it is, you know, like from your lay experience, they hide it because it's un-American. It's mm. undemocratic to mm-hmm. actually admit that you can live like that. Right. So you, so you, so you start running a nonprofit or you do something mm-hmm. to make it look like you're working. Yeah. Yeah, or something so which is yeah i don't know i feel like maybe you know i didn't grow up I, I didn't live in like old european country where classes and everything is way more you know in a way i don't know not that immovable i guess you can like obviously r- r- 
race and <laughs> status and all that. But overall, those things are known. You mm-hmm. know, who's aristocrat and that's their estate potentially from even uh, even if they're not that rich now, but they have some kind of almost a castle from five centuries ago. Right, right. <laughs> it is. No, the people have it in Italy. You 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 find out about it. But here, it's like everything is sort of so puritanically hypocritical. Everyone hides it. Mm-hmm. Whoever has it. And obviously not that many have it. So I don't know. It's interesting to see Adam's family having that. And that's an American movie, you know. Yeah. But, you know, but so clearly pointing to some vague old world <laughs> thing. Yeah. Well, let's talk. <laughs> what is it? It's a mix of bubble. It's some kind of Jewish. I yes. think it's Caramia and Bubala. Kind of European Jews. Yeah. Yeah, you don't know exactly their antecedents exactly. <laughs> yeah. But it's interesting that we both skewed the, the general overlap we have, even though we would point to different movies, is we both pointed to you either have to go comedy or you have to go very, very dark where one of the partners tends to die. <laughs> and we both I agree. For me, it's like gothic melodramas a la the Bronte sisters. I think they totally get doomed love. And if you've ever experience doomed love Charlotte and Emily Bronte become your friends because they actually get it um, but but yeah, yeah same like thing you gotta heights, go yeah. yeah Wuthering Heights and you know well they've never adapted Villette but that's the real doomed love experience yeah, I don't think I ever read oh it's well, a, kind of shame. obscure but it's genius it's, it's actually hard to read because at first it's so, so unique you can't figure out what she's doing for chapters and then you're finally like mm-hmm. oh and then it just as a gut punch ending but it's all based on her Charlotte Bronte's own doomed romance, mm-hmm. her doomed love for a, a married professor, and that is very well documented. She she wrote she wrote letters. She obviously she wrote it into several different fictional books. Um, you know, so they really she really took all of her agony and poured it right in <laughs> into some novel forms. Um, so yeah, so I the same I have the same skewering, and then avoiding the whole middle ground, which just seems awful and 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 laden with the worst kind of cliches that don't seem to ring resonate with anything I've ever experienced. But you know what's interesting about Doom with Love? Uh, I mean, I'm talking about especially if someone like tragically and Jan dies or or the union is impossible or mm-hmm. whatnot. Yeah. There's something about, I mean, especially about if someone dies, there's something um, I think um, <laughs> uh, it's, it's connected to the fact that if you kind of, if your potential loved one dies at the peak of your love for mm-hmm. him or her, they really become the best love you ever had because they died on the peak of that whatever. Uh, doesn't matter, real or perceived or whatever romantic feeling. Mm-hmm. So it's also kind of almost interesting if you die on the peak, then you really it's really becomes immortal. Love is immortal. And even if it's an illusion, because who knows, what if they survived for a few more years? And you just got sick of them and they no, developed a pot yeah. belly. And yeah. <laughs> you never, like, really, you never know. So there's something very... You know, that's the mortal. Mm-hmm. What else? I mean, sure, things can r- remain very great for very long without anyone dying young. But at the same time, that kind of tragic, mm-hmm. tragic loss can is, stay glamorous is, in some way. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. There's there's something to that, which is, I mean, I think it's relevant generally throughout ages today, tomorrow, clearly, mm-hmm. because you can't get um, disappointed or yet mm-hmm. <laughs> in any way. So they almost become like saintly. Right, saintly creature. Right, right. Who never, <laughs> never wronged you? So I don't know. So, so I guess that is that I, I can connect to your kind of mm-hmm. predilection towards like um, gothic melodramas because they are frequently kind of touch on that, right? Mm-hmm. 
Well, yeah. And I did find in my own experience that when I find, you know, it took a while for me for a long time. I was I actually had convinced myself that it was just a literary conceit. All the all the poetic agon over over lost love or doomed love or whatever. I just finally thought, you know, I'm not even sure I believe this is real. Maybe maybe it's just been weeded out of our as our as our blood kind of thins over generations or something. We don't feel it anymore. And then, of course, I got completely wrecked um, by a very short involvement with, the, you know, someone it never would have worked out but that was part of it even even during the few months it was going on it was clear it was never going to work out and the agony i felt was so incredible that it was it you know of course it was such suffering at the time but later i was actually grateful because i was like no I, I at least verified that that some of those descriptions are absolutely right <laughs> they're absolutely true and oh, Sort of incomp- like incompatibility or just a- inability. Oh, it to- was in every way. This this he, he, this was a person who was he had another girlfriend. He was heading for another. He was not serious. I was serious. He was not, and just just everything about the relationship was going to be nothing but the darkest kind of sardonic. <laughs> exchanges and darker, worse emotions and mis- horrible miscommunicating and nothing ever working right. Nothing, nothing ever went right. It was, it was awful. It was sort of like Charles Dickens in his, probably his best novel, um, Great Expectations, where, you know, the, the main lead okay. character, Phil Pip, his name is, is in love with Estella and just can't get yeah. past it, is obsessively in love. And he says, he says at one point, I never spent one happy hour with her. <laughs> but he loved her. But he, but at the same time, felt if I could just have her, my whole life would be happy. But that made no sense, and that's exactly what it was like. It was like I never spent one restfully happy hour because I could never feel secure at all, and there was always some little shot taken, you know, usually from him to me, but sometimes the other way. And it was just a dark, you know, that, yeah, dark interlude. But at the same time, I've always been grateful because it really wrecked me. And you got to get wrecked emotionally. You got to. It brings you humility. You lose all this kind of priggish sense of superiority to earlier generations who just couldn't get their acts together. Or something. All of a sudden, you're like, nope. I now know I would humiliate myself totally. I would violate any principle I ever thought I had. I would have done anything. No make- self-respect. Oh, none. None. <laughs> Crawl on my belly over broken glass. Would have done it if I thought it could have worked. Yeah. Oh, man. And, you know, but it also proves that even if you're the most um, some kind of well-read literary person mm. who knows the story of, like, I don't know, arts, literature from, like, ancient whatever Greece till today, yeah. it still doesn't help because, like, it's not the same as, like, living things, you know, like, actually experiencing them. Well, and you do feel like, yes, that nobody at least – I certainly felt like nobody in my time was conveying what I was going through. It was it was so intense. It was like it was like having some – but if you read – I think if you read older authors, you do read the comparisons to having some sort of deadly wasting illness. It was like yeah, but, that. But my point is that I, I guess it's more of almost a, also a question than a mm-hmm. statement. Would you say that despite you like – having read by the time different novels mm-hmm. knowing about stuff is that doesn't not only prepare you but doesn't save your dignity. oh it can't save you oh no 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 Even no if you know actually the trajectory of those narratives i mean let's say you know literally speaking so if the reality hits it just doesn't necessarily reflect like you not act any more dignified oh no god no no it doesn't help and you at all in that way like, <laughs> and no. never read any of that stuff no. that's what surprises yeah. me because that seems to be true right 
You think you think they could help prepare you? Think you, you know, <laughs> tropes, right? Yeah, but it's so overwhelming when it's happening to you. You're right that it's as if it never happened to anyone else before, and you're just stuck. You're just lost in it. Oh my god! You know, and your friends are no help because your friends all tell you it's just an infatuation, Eileen. It's not a healthy relationship. You know, now we have this whole antiseptic language of what love should be. You know, my friend Dolores, who's been on the show several times, tries mm-hmm. to teach classes about love. And film and stuff and she's like oh my god people's hang-ups now young people's they all believe in love as healthy it's all in terms of these kind of sanitary is it good for you then you should stop if it's not good for you and she's just like what wow, is wrong with all of you oh no she and she's showing them wuthering heights which is one of her favorite the 39 version is genius and and they're just like well that's not a very healthy relationship they're just not communicating <laughs> she's just like oh my god <laughs> So to every generation, their idiocy when it comes to love, the idea that you can have this safe, sanitary experience of love. Holy God. Wow. I have to say, though, like, um, again, I don't know that much of a stuff, but right in the Greek tradition, there are all these divisions. I don't remember how many, four or more Mm -hmm. of different, there are different names for different labs, right? And like the ones that at least I remember just two because they're clearly kind of like opposing. And I think it relates to what you're saying because mm-hmm. there's that like erotic thing which is eros and then there's something that called i think agape mm-hmm. which is more almost like kind of christian mm-hmm. but at this point you don't have to call it christian it's just more sort of almost um just humane and the most i don't know like warm and i guess not torturous and mm-hmm. what i guess what people would say and probably no, elevating healthy. in some way yeah. elevating for yeah. you know not yeah doesn't mm-hmm. make you lose dignity, but only gain, and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Supposedly, if you can interpret it. So, the, but so the division sort of does exist. And I think when I started to think about this in terms of movies, I mean, clearly, I think you kind of can appreciate both of those things. Hopefully, you get to experience both. But like both of those things portrayed in movies, and the ones that are kind of more touch on arrows, which I think would you probably. <laughs> <laughs> talking about mm. um those interesting i don't know withering heights gonna have that i guess but i don't know because i uh, mo- most of like my little list is way more modern mm-hmm. so i feel like you know um i don't know like the the first film by paul verhoeven i somehow still captivated by even though it's been a while since i rewatched it mm-hmm. uh it's like this uh it's the first one he made it i think in amsterdam called turkish delight mm-hmm. have you heard of it no from you no. i think you mentioned it I on an early oh, earlier yeah, episode it's available yeah it's available you can watch it it's interesting but uh, again yeah okay it's not a gothic melodrama but it's very much um you know, it does touches on definitely not agape, some kind of Christian love, but there's like, like I guess the erotic one, but mm-hmm. um, but not only. And they and the interesting thing they're also kind of you know it's about it's a story about this kind of young uh, sort of macho architect who just um, uh, I don't know lives kind of in this irresponsible way, and uh, I don't know dates different women and uh, he makes sculptures and uh, just has has fun and once he meets this like young girl and she's kind of weird and crazy and he falls for her mm-hmm. and even manages to marry her and then she starts acting uber weird and and he's fall, like completely transfixed by her and like that's it he's not interested in anyone else and he's faithful and all that but she leaves him and turns out later when they reconnect when they meet like she has a brain tumor mm-hmm. and that was the brain tumor that made probably her personality so um mm-hmm. 
I don't know, <laughs> wacky in the first place. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, anyway, and she dies from, from the tumor in the end and he's sort of by her side. And it's, at that point, it's, you know, she's like kind of going, I guess, from chemo and uh, kind of lost all her hair. So it's clearly not only <laughs> erotic love. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it's interesting how one can go into another and also just really not about knowing it's not you know there's like a form of love where really not it's not about knowing the other person it's mm-hmm. it's more like this i guess what you were describing about some kind oh, of definitely transfiction you're, you're just somehow struck by the person and you feel tied to them <laughs> or they just the idea or, the, or physically I've, I've never been sure i mean you know people don't talk about like what senses are beguiled and we usually talk in terms of the eye but what about the ear what if, what if somebody's voice just just completely hypnotizes you or even the smell of their skin and we don't talk about things like that but that can be just maybe even more than what ties you to that other person it can also be you know the, again conversational rhythms the sex whatever but there's just less obvious things that people tend not to talk about like that that hold you in this and again com- com- comparisons to like magic spells and stuff that doesn't seem wrong you get kind of transfixed by people or, or yeah, you know, but, but I just what I'm saying that it's like actually you might n- never throughout all this trans infatuation really you don't really know them so it's not about that. It's well, I don't know what that means though. What is what is <laughs> no, knowing? I don't know. I mean, the idea of just knowing anyone is actually questionable to begin with. Yeah. So you might never know anyone you lived with potentially <laughs> for forty years with. That's also a possibility, mm-hmm. I guess. I guess, um, but at least it's sort of um, I don't know. It's more something like the other, you know, othering the person and just being more, uh, I don't know, I guess in love with some idea and an image rather than who knows that somehow gets projected in mm-hmm. the retina or whatever. Well, and there's certainly haunting movies about that, you know, Vertigo being probably the ultimate mm-hmm. and the projected fantasy that keeps getting <laughs> dismantled and then reprojected and is just, just, you know, a tragic mess. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's and I, I didn't think about it. I like I like the movie, but I don't know. It's so well, it's like, so much about this, the, uh, and you could suggest it is talking about male fantasy and the tendency mm-hmm. to build an image, and you don't even want to know the truth. And when the truth is announcing itself to you, you don't want to know the truth, even though that could mean you could have real love. That, that you don't want real love. You want the, yeah, you want the you image. Want the image. <laughs> I guess that's what I was yeah. trying to get. To Together. But anyway, so, but that's like one of the kind of one of the strains of potentially kind of interesting movies or mm-hmm. that really yeah. in reality. But okay, but the other because I, I want to move on. The other for me, which is like a bigger clearly group and a bigger element, is just this. I mean, I don't know. Even, I mean, there's some errors there too, of course. But just this movie is like something like The Fly, mm-hmm. or Solaris. Um, but I kind of, I guess, unite those things together. But mm-hmm. like, let's say The Fly. I, I always thought, and I rewatched it rather recently again. Mm-hmm. That's like, even though it's a fantastical movie about a scientist mm-hmm. uh, by accident, kind of fusing his DNA with a DNA with a fly, and slowly turning into the fly mm-hmm. it's actually a movie about like love and aging and, di- and death because actually in the entire movie majority of the scenes and really what the movie is about is the relationship with the scientist who uh, right before by accident fusing himself with a fly he just met this um i think she's a science journalist mm-hmm. and they fall in love and um and that's 
the slough story, but he's starting to fly and basically going to die, clearly. Mm-hmm. But um, so it, it seems like almost Cronenberg, which you can believe he's like a very actually cerebral director. It is a it is about being together and one of you, you know, not turning to fly in reality. I don't think that has happened yet, but just being slowly getting decrepit and dying and you're just there so i don't know i feel like the, the fly is actually one of the most interesting movies that about that but yet treating it in this kind of fantastical way that allows you some kind of distance from the reality mm-hmm. of just what when a person dying and not turning into a fly it's still horrible stuff happens physically to you well and people transform in unexpected ways transform even, into something else right even before he starts degenerating which really does mm-hmm. seem like it's modeling you know illness mm-hmm. and death he yeah. goes through that period where he's sexually in- ultra intensified and he's eating oh, yeah. like crazy he's eating all the sugar in the world and everything oh he's a fly yeah and she's having to go through these other kinds of if not transformations reveal are they reveals you know so that they have their comparison in life where suddenly you're starting a new relationship with people. What's the time frame? They always give you like people can only be polite for a couple of months and then they start <laughs> aspects of themselves start getting revealed that weren't shown. So it's almost like other, you know, he's like, come on, let's be mm-hmm. a dynamic duo. He just wants to screw like 48 <laughs> hours in a row and, and it seems to come out of nowhere. So, but the movie does such a great job in conveying the, Oh my God, I, I was in love with this guy, but now all of these other things are are being revealed or he's being trans you know, people have this kind of flux, you know, mutable quality over time. You know, things are gonna change, um, or they're gonna reveal more of themselves. And, and so it mm-hmm. takes to a fantastic nightmare <laughs> degree of how much can she stand of the rapidity. You know, usually you have years and years, decades and decades if you stay with a person. She's you know, she's having days and then there's a new <laughs> A new horrifying. They're accelerated. It's almost like yeah, they're together for what six months. Yeah. I don't know. I it's don't some shortish. Months, but it's like forty years. Yeah, intense years. relationship. Yes, that's compacted. And there, it helps too that they're this great couple. I mean, they were actually married. I don't know if they were married by the time of that film, but they were married because they're both incredibly tall, incredibly slender, incredibly kind of humorous, offbeat people. So they seem right together from the first. So that that has a great power in and of itself. They seem like they, they are a couple and indeed they were a couple. Um, yeah, I was actually, you know, usually I don't care, but you know, I, when they broke up, I was actually sad because they had such great physical impact. I'd seen her in, in, you know, in life and she was so tall and so thin and it was just like, wow, she, it, it's really striking to see someone who looks like that in real life. Cause how you know, did you meet her? You mean, oh, I didn't meet her. Party? She was, she came into a restaurant where called Victor's mm. where all stars used to come. It's totally shabby, you know, kind of deli breakfast place um, in Hollywood. Hollywood. And she just mm-hmm. walked in one day. It was after her her Jeff Goldblum days. But again, when when someone's that striking physically, because you know she just was immensely tall and angular and <laughs> and looked like a slightly other species, the way very very tall people um, who are glamorous looking can look. And it just seems such a shame because you know they were just they were they had a rightness together at least in the image they created that was very unusual for Hollywood. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, you're right about like being kind of funny and offbeat. At the same time, mm-hmm. it's been extremely like good looking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's uh, even a great there. moment where their Cronenberg does something interesting because he, he doesn't have a lot of time to establish them as mm-hmm. a couple before all this you know crazy stuff's going to happen. And I remember there's this one moment I haven't seen it in years and years and years where he wants he wants to take something of hers, and I forget why. He, but he says, you could give me a piece of jewelry or something. And I can't remember if he wants to run it through the 
the machine or what mm-hmm. it might be. And she says, well, I never wear jewelry. I hate the feeling of it. And so she, she gives him, I think it's a scarf. It's something cloth. And he clearly it's clearly Cronenberg trying to give her, give her particularity um, really rapidly, but it was very memorable because that's, that's very much about your feelings. I have some of these things myself. I can't wear, stand to wear certain things because they just bother me that other people ordinarily wear. So it was a really nice, sensitive moment um, of his direction. I thought. Yeah, I can't, you know, I can't remember this detail. No, it's I, so small. I don't know, even know why I remember it. It's just that it seemed an unusual move to make. Well, I guess because it had like some psychological veracity. Well, and Cronenberg's good at that. He, he comes at things from a different angle than most people do, you know? Yeah, which brings me to Dead Ringers, because I think it's another actually great movie about love, even if it's a movie about like twin gynecologists. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know that one, right? Yes. Where, mm-hmm. Both of them obviously are obsessed with the same woman. Yeah. Yeah. But I actually, the way, I mean, I watched it a number of times. I Mm -hmm. think it's probably, I don't know. I love Cronenberg, but it's one of my favorite movies by him. And he's in his top shape, I think, when he made it. Um, And there's basically almost like one person, Jeremiah, is playing both of the brothers Mm -hmm. on screen for almost two hours and it's transfixing somehow. Anyway, but the thing for me about this movie, even though it's about a movie about twins and their inseparability, is actually in some ways sometimes reminding me that can be like, uh, you know, a heterosexual couple or like some kind of it can be marriage. It's, It's like when you kind of merge and you can't really, it's almost like you can somehow exist on a different plane. So right. You know, one of the twins in the movie, that's the whole tragedy. He seemed the weaker, quieter of the mm-hmm. brothers, uh, more like scientifically inclined and the others, more gregarious and like sort of almost confident. Mm-hmm. It turned out that the weaker one tried to, you know, get together with a woman he was in love with mm-hmm. and supposedly strong and gregarious one turned out to be the weaker one. And he was the one who couldn't be a part, mm-hmm. couldn't really function and couldn't do anything and couldn't, didn't want to almost like live without him like that. So it's also, I think it's very insightful because mm-hmm. it's not, the coupling is not exactly how it, it the, the dynamic is not exactly what it might seem from outside in terms of whatever introvert, extrovert, who's the stronger of the mm-hmm. unit, who's the weaker, right? It's, I don't know. I thought it, again, as Cronenberg, the psychological veracity was kind of really intense and it's a very scary film. Right. And that's very smart, too, because, it you know, you can then take it back again and apply it to one of the eerier qualities of love where parts of you, if you stay together long enough, start to overlap and become merged. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And, you know, you get that in, say, Wuthering Heights, where when Kathy says, I am Heathcliff, his soul and mine are the same. And in the movie, they do a huge crack of lightning, of thunder and lightning, because this is so like uncanny, scary and frankly, pretty radical. Because it's it's pointing to something that's very uneasy making or can be about about love. The euphemisms are you become one and all that jazz. But yeah, but it's not necessarily pretty. It's I not mean, pretty. It's like, that has a horror <laughs> element as well. Yeah, as well. It's like this body. It's like a weird kind of like almost umbilical cord. Yes. Weird. But it's not necessarily healthy, even even if it's all about like whatever beautiful. But from I don't know from outside but yeah it's there's something there's an unhealthy quality and he captured it really well so again the the, the health model of love will not stand i'm sorry no. i'm with dolores she's always saying love is dangerous and people trying to make it safe are nuts you can never make it totally safe it never will be no. and we really don't want any part of that we want it all to be wholesome 
Yeah, but yeah. also it's weird. Even in the best case scenario, which is like, I mean, majority of people extol, besides some kind of erotic transfix, like, mm-hmm. I don't know, adventure, the thing that has been extolled, it seems like in different literature, just for ages, this kind of immortal love mm-hmm. and never being bore, bored with each other and being together forever and right. having some kind of rhythm, which is great. Yes, it's all true. But then as back to the dead ringers, there is that element, the scary element of merging mm-hmm. that even in the best case scenario mm-hmm. is really hard to you know sort of escape mm-hmm. which is very yeah again very freaking in some way so i totally agree with you dolores i didn't know she was teaching class on that this is like i don't think there's actually a way to be like totally some kind of this rational individuals engaged in the most healthy <laughs> right. <sort of> rational <laughs> yeah. compartment in i don't know in that <laughs> in that realm because there is something mad about it when you're when you're sh- sharing your total life with one person you can see why people are into polyamory and everything and just like they, they, it's so that's an easy way out it's cheap it's well like maybe cheating. i don't know i can't speak to, i've never tried it but it just seems i kind of understand because there is a kind of madness to to how how merged your lives are that after a while you're like wow this is up <laughs> you know i mean and i i loved it i've had i had the best of it believe me for mm-hmm. decades but it, it still is an odd <laughs> we treat it like it's the most natural arrangement but then sometimes but you stop that, and right? go hmm <laughs> you know because it also grates on you it's very hard you know there's always going to be some conflict i, I at least. But, but also is there an element because you had it well well longer than i, I do have it version of it but mm-hmm. that's that weird twin element that yeah. comes in absolutely again the Cronenberg captured it I mean unintentionally I don't know it's really a movie about twins not 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 uh, mm-hmm. lovers and not married people but he captures it so in a, such a scary profound manner mm-hmm. so yeah so there's so you ha- you kind of had elements of that yeah, oh, definitely, definitely, and of course now I've I've lost my husband, so now I'm I'm halved, <laughs> you know. So many things are just like, oh, that's not there anymore. So it's it, that, that, and talk about scary. Talk about and, and don't think just like in Wuthering Heights, I haven't begged to be haunted. Please come back in any form and haunt me, torment me, do whatever, because just so you'll be here. Oh, that's the that's the Heathcliff speech after Kathy dies. You know the the Brontes. They totally fucking get it. They totally get it. The dark side of love. Just consult any of their works. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's see. What uh, What else I have on my list? Well, I kind of, I don't want to get into it. I'm not like a really big fan of Hanukkah, but I had it on my list because it's such a, I don't actually know any other movies like that, even though it's so surgical and kind of sterile to why, like, I don't know the way it's made and I think some people hate him you know the movie he made maybe his latest from like I don't know five years ago or more uh, called Love Amour yeah I haven't seen it you haven't seen Mm -mm. it it's interesting well at least I'll mention it even though God oh go ahead sort of like really bad like um, I don't know a couple in their like what late 70s maybe 80s already it's like Jean-Louis Trantignan and uh, Riva you know uh, she's a really famous actress I I need to check my names Um, yeah Jean-Louis Trantignan and uh, Emmanuel Riva yeah so Mm -hmm. they're like really really um like i mean old people which you rarely kind of see couples like that in the movie is about their love it's not about them just being like grandparents or anything like that mm-hmm. anyway so and i've never seen a movie actually that gets at the love is also mercy kill part of love mm-hmm. is, the, is your almost responsibility to save your partner from 
some kind of disgrace if they want to be saved. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, the entire movie is actually, uh, you know, starts as them being kind of happily returning, I think, from some kind of musical concert because they're like, I think, former music teachers and they're into classical music and they're returning and she suffers like a minor stroke, but then mm-hmm. she suffers more strokes and she clearly gets really quickly in this debilitating state. Mm-hmm. And eventually, you know, he becomes just her... Uh, caretaker Mm -hmm. but she doesn't really want to be in a nursing home and she tries to sort of (laughs) kind of come out of the window anyway she has a few attempts to leave and then Mm -hmm. eventually he sort of takes a mercy on her and just kind of suffocates her mm-hmm. with a pillow. I think it's not too much of a reveal because it's actually such a slow movie. It's not much of a reveal at all. Mm-hmm. And and that's and that's the movie he called Love because, you know, there's like an interesting component is it's surely they have that kind of dead ringers thing, but he mm-hmm. has enough of the willpower to actually do it for her. And that's, I don't know, it's really, um, it's kind of like a really brutal kind of sterile, sterile clinical film, the way Haneke only can do it, you know, mm-hmm. with all the cruelty you can only imagine and all the kind of, uh, it's not, I mean, it's not like Cronenberg in terms of physicality that's shown, but it's still enough physicality to be sort of, and, you know, kind of <laughs> repelled, even though the two, the elderly couple, they're, they're like the amazingly handsome people, even mm-hmm. as old people. So that's like the most, you know, the best out of the old couples you can generally can see in that state, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's already a bit like sugar coated just for the cinematic sake, you know. So things clearly can get way uglier than than that. Um, but anyway, so I think that's the film. I kind of it stays with you. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I think people who are not that old and whatever not there don't want to really go there. I can totally understand why no one even. Oh no! I mean, yeah, clearly that would be you know. A Haneke, it's got to be an art film that takes it on because what popular film would take on the implications of long-lasting coupledom, which takes you mm-hmm. into to sickness, degeneration, and death. And yeah. one is going to have to be the caretaker for the other, and then the other is alone. <laughs> you know, unless there are children or someone else is going to take care of them. But, you know, that's what you're signing. That's that whole marriage vow thing. And marriage is very, you know, long, no, not fashionable, at least in a lot of among a lot of people now. But that's that whole sickness and in health till death do your part and you are vowing something that you can't even begin to conceive of <laughs> when I, I got married in Vegas so I technically that was part of it but it was hardly a, a sacred space or a serious surroundings where I got married but then you realize as you're aging wow this is what I'm agreeing to this is this you mean is, the Vegas you bring it up is because it's been more that's when people do it spontaneously right well, yeah, you get married, you don't, you have no idea. I mean, yeah. even if you take the quote unquote vows, which again, mm-hmm. you know, who thinks of it? Who really can? You don't know what it is. And then as you're, it's only as you're aging and these things are beginning to happen and you, you know, you get tastes of it. You know, somebody gets sick, you know, somebody even gets the, a bad flu and all of a sudden the household is, you know, back on your shoulders. And, you know, so you, you're going to go through or they get injured or something. So you go through little testers, you know, but nothing can prepare you for the, the immense responsibilities of final illness and death. That's and it's all on you. <laughs> the doctors turn to you to say, yeah. what do you want to have done? Literally at the end, what do you want to have done? And you have to make the decision. So all this kind of immensity of weight, you can kind of understand what what the vow is at least trying to do for you if you, if you engage in it. Uh, and again, on the, and I'm a, I'm a socialist. On the left, marriage is utterly scorned as terribly retrograde and re- repressive and awful and everything. I still think it's profound. But, I, but then I was married for a long time. 
Yeah, I find it profound, but you mean on the left in terms of this kind of like um, stifling qualities? What yeah, and it's it's just a bad institution for women, and you know, it's it's got a kind of you know, it's got repressive qualities built in. It's bougie, mm-hmm. it's capitalist, it's old fashioned. It's you know, it's usually just a generally regressive state. So the, you talk about the kind of Yano old lefties, any lefties are. Uh, I, don't, I don't even know if I can make the division. I think it's a fairly popular you know, stance on the left to be scornful of the, even the words husband and wife are, are, are considered bad words. And people say partners. partners. Yeah, now it's, they say partners, which I always find. But I don't always know that like part, like working part. I don't always know who's a partner. Yeah. I I sometimes get confused, but yeah, I hear that a lot. Yeah. But it just becomes to me, it's a question. And it doesn't, for most people, they don't think about it until a certain age. And then it suddenly hits you. What? what you're in on and are you going to walk are you going to bail <laughs> are you going to bail when things are going to get very serious and of course if you've been together a long time you and you and you generally still love each other you're not going to bail but the immensity of what you've taken on doesn't hit you until in the extremist circumstances and then you realize what you've taken on it's weird that they like the la- like the sort of left wing whatever or part of left wing ideology would be anti the union. I don't even care about this, like legal le- some kind of uh, legal marriage or mm. whatever in, in terms of um, property inheritance that all mm. that. I'm not talking about that because that's clearly like a bourgeois concept and mm-hmm. you know historically it was right. Woman is like almost like a property and so property le- related and all that stuff and who inherits what. And the children, but outside of that, it doesn't sound. I mean, it sounds obviously, ultimately, I don't know. There's scary element there, but it doesn't sound that anti-left wing or conservative, really, because <laughs> it sort of op- opens you up to other people in a way that's. I can't do the argument for justice. We'd need to get somebody who's a proper believer. Yeah, for me, I see. I'm I'm very you know I'm regressive myself in that I love rites, rituals, ceremonies. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I love all all sorts of anything that's the kind of morbidly <laughs> um, meaningful in, in these ways. I love all that shit. So, so of course, you need something, or I think I, I would need something. I, other people don't seem to feel this way. You know, you move in together, blah, whatever. You own things separately, whatever. Whatever you do, people seem to be fine with that. Uh, but mm-hmm. I, I crave, I crave all the ceremonial and all the saying of words that make things so in, in a kind of reality. You, know, <laughs> you are now bound forever. Is To me, that's just catnip, man. <laughs> I don't want anything less than the drama of you are now bound forever. <laughs> yeah, that won't do oh for me. God. That's just callow. That's for silly people. <laughs> no, no, I must be bound. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, with huge consequences. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, yeah, I don't know. Well, I, it's not, there are clearly movies about that, but I don't get into this because it's not really compelling. Only, I don't know, at least I witnessed not that much around me or um, writing-wise, but also reality-wise. All the polyamorous stuff tries to, seems to try to kind of retain some sort of conventions and the warmth of some sort of semi, or not semi-committed relationship, but making it with multiple people, they almost like try to sort of deny the human nature that is definitely has jealousy in it and all the other stuff, which, or I don't know, I guess the argument can be that they try to go beyond and like advance the human nature into not. Oh, having and I thought, I thought that was dealt with by everyone talks it out. Everyone talks it through. They talk it all the time, but also <laughs> there's another element, which I don't know, that's like a very, um, 
I mean, I don't know. And that's not a very profound thought, but mm. that's just from outside when you look at the polyamorous that I saw my witness. It, it seems to be like such a pompous thing to do. <laughs> well, the, because there is the downside like, that you have to be no, preached no, no. to about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, not that. Not against, not, not against it, but it's almost like as if this is your entire life. It's not like, you know, the people who are like not in this, they're not necessarily emphasize. The, the type of the relationship they're engaged with the ones who are polyamorous are constantly engaged in some kind of relationship problems mm. or dealing or as you say it talking sounds so out. exhausting this is what rules it's it out exhausting. for me so yeah, tiring like one relationship is so much already that so, how can yeah, you take on five or something yeah, that's just, thing. Wow. I can do anything so if you instantly <laughs> I'm just more it's like it's I'm not it's not a moral judgment it's almost like from a practical perspective oh man never it's understood like engage something <laughs> or dealing with someone or or soothing uh, someone, or like figuring, talking it out, and with your like four partners. Oh, I know! Oh my god, I'd rather be shot! Oh my god! Like either, either you like capital, like commercialize, like capitalizing on that, and somehow uh, relaying that into your somehow. <laughs> I don't know identity and money making. How? What? Are, what else? just weird that how can you have time really to engage seriously in anything else yeah I, I, I don't know this is why I hated every you know marriage was perfect for me because I hated dating I hated short term relationships I hate just fucking exhausting it's just like so much work and agon and strain and oh never would go back and certainly never would try to take multiple Jesus you, you're all nuts but all right well the kids have energy I don't know uh yeah, let's see. Uh, I'm looking at like some sort of closing. Yeah, yeah. How do we even wrap up Love and Film? We can't do it. Uh... But no, but before I wrap up, I don't care about the cancellation. Mm-hmm. I, I have to name it because it sort of stays with me, even if whatever, it's sort of popular. And mm-hmm. some people, I guess, find it banal. But Woody Allen's film, Annie Hall, mm-hmm. I'm actually, I would put it in the same list. I mean, not in the same. It's obviously a comedy. So it's a more uplifting out of all the out of all the other um, outside of Screwball. Um, so, yeah, I kind of, I mean, at least for me, I don't know even if they were clearly not my generation way before. But the way, I think it's one of his best movies for me because Woody Allen is clearly such a narcissistic person that's yeah. always... Only doing navel gazing, and it's sometimes, not sometimes frequently, you know, as you, you like saying in the early ones, it's like funny and he's engaging mm. and it's still entertaining, sure. But I think it's actually rare that you can see and it's real. I know it's like based sort of a character he created, but it's clearly Dan Kidden, so you can actually see that he really got into being truly interested in another human, mm-hmm. which is her, and he got into her idiosyncratic self and her quirks and into her personality, which is like you would think, whoa, he really well he really could do it it's not all about some kind of erotic obsession with someone or this or that he really got into it and that's i think there is that why the movie works so well i mean still because it's actually is not only about him mm-hmm. it's about him a little bit you know him, like his love for her or whatever and and things not working out and mm-hmm. him being heartbroken or whatever there's clearly still a lot about him but not fully which i think for him is like a big it's like a <laughs> a rare occurrence mm-hmm. which I don't know makes it in a, on another level even outside of Woody Allen narcissistic persona it, it's like a really kind of sweet I think it's a really sweet movie that's almost like you know it's like a love letter to another person yeah and you certainly could say that in Diane Keaton he's met his he's met his match yeah because you know if you look at Manhattan and he's he winds up with the you know 
know, the seventeen-year-old girl who's who just dotes on him, and and you know, and is is a voice like Mickey Mouse, and you know, um, but is not cannot punch at his weight at all, and yeah, so that you finally see Woody Allen with someone who can who can match him, even neurosis for neurosis and eccentricity yeah. for eccentricity, <laughs> and he can't entirely rope her into his world, into Woody Allen world. Yeah, so there's like enough of her world that she get he gets interested in her world mm-hmm. and doesn't just makes her a part of his that's true his universe and just he is the sun and the moon and she's just a minor planet no she's her own she's well her and own she planet. she can do things like prefer la to new york which to him is so incomprehensible <laughs> he doesn't even understand what she's saying she, she wants yeah. to go back to la what yeah there's that's true there are some beautiful moments of his of his like wait what's what could be happening here she doesn't agree with me <laughs> She won't yeah. kowtow to my to my take. <laughs> yeah, and, it's, and again, it's it's one of the rare films by him when it's again it's not some obsession with a woman in his life. It's actually is about that woman and her life mm-hmm. besides his, which is again whoa. I, I mean, I didn't watch all of his movies, but it seems to be so so rare for him. Yeah, generally to be in that state of mind. Right, you know? right. I guess that's true. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so I kind of so I wanted to have it to be. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a, like you're right. That's a nice take that you have to reckon with the other person. And that sounds like well, obviously, but not obviously. I think people you'll meet a lot of couples who are really depressing in the world, where one clearly runs has dominated everything, sets the terms for mm-hmm. everything, and the other person has kind of founded themselves on that person, and not in a good way. I mean, I guess there's ways that that can be okay, but usually it's very much not in a good way. Um, no, it's usually like one tree and everything. It's just some kind of yeah, and some little, little tendril branch. hanging onto the yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, onto the tree. Yeah, you're weakling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is why yeah, the most heartening movies are so. You, no matter how much sparring there is involved. It, it, Yes, there's there's another equal party and you have to you have to engage. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so that so that's that for me. That's, that's yes. a, it's a good it's a feel good movie. Oh, definitely, definitely. That, and that's right before he goes, in my view, off the cliff and becomes impossible. <laughs> <laughs> it's the last one. That's <laughs> a good cutoff. Yeah, it is yeah. a good cutoff. Oh, and, and on top of it, it still fits into more or less your and also my paradigm of movies. Like it, they're done even remain together, and it's still a sweet movie. It's not about happy ever after. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be right. You know. It could just be, yes, an interlude that was great and significant. And yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah so, and again, it's like the worlds meet mm-hmm. and sometimes they don't merge. Mm-hmm. So that's fine. So, and again, pretty, actually pretty somewhat radical. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't thought of that. That's very interesting. Hmm. Not even bitter there. So anyway, that's I think that's kind of, <laughs> that's, that's interesting. Um, yeah, so I don't know. Do you have anything? No, I, th- I, think, I think we managed to get, you know, without disgracing ourselves too badly, we managed to get through, through this impossible talk. I'm very, very glad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, good. Not, not, not too embarrassing. Not to too share bad. This. Not too bad. <laughs> Oh, okay, so uh, yeah, and um, and next that. week I think we have a topic ready, don't we? We're going to talk about the Duplass brothers show Animals, right? Oh, yeah. I and want to co- do it and contrast it to Creature Comforts, which is a much older series of, I guess, short films. I, mean, I think it was a show briefly um, in England. The original is an Oscar-winning short film, uh-huh. play, and then I think way later it was made, yeah, into the more you know animated kind of. Uh, serious. Uh, even might be like a few seasons. I, I think know. a couple seasons. Yeah, maybe two, something like that. 
we're going to contrast those two and, and maybe we can do a jump off to like just animals and in films and the way animals are represented in films and relate to humans in films. Yeah, that's 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 a good broad. Yeah, it's important too. we got to get into that because, you know, the Disney thing is a bad, you know, frankly, I would say it's a bad version of animals. And so anyway, we'll get into that next time. All right. So see you next week. Okay. Bye. <laughs>